Andrew Collingwood. I write for Bornbrook magazine and other online outlets on geostrategy, economics and British politics. Hi, my name is Philip Pilkington. I'm a macroeconomist who spent nearly a decade working in investment management. Both of us believe that the world is undergoing a once a century geopolitical and macroeconomic shift. After decades of American leadership, the unipolar world is finally ending. Since World War II, America has set the terms of global trade and it's backed these up with its control over international institutions and its enormous military power. But things are changing. China is still rising. Russia has reawakened. Europe, America's longtime partner, is in long-term decline. Each week, we'll be dissecting three stories that illustrate the shift, from how semiconductor shortages in Taiwan influence Japanese military spending, to how a new scramble for rare earth metals is remaking US foreign policy. We'll be talking about economics and geopolitics, but most importantly, we'll be talking about how they influence each other, how resource competition drives the great game of empires and alliances, and how that story is the great emerging tale of the 21st century. This is multipolarity, charting the rise of the new multipolar world order. Coming up this week. Janet Yellen is back in the headmaster's study, a week after multipolarity gave her a thousand demerits for her incoherent comments. She's given a major speech on China. Has she been taking notes or will she need to do a thousand lines on the difference between trade surplus countries and those with a $382 billion deficit? As China retaliates in kind, America's chip ban is chafing at its allies. Soon, the US might have to decide between getting its friends to support its proxy war in Ukraine or to hobble their own exports. There may be truth in the old saying, to be America's enemy is dangerous, to be its friend is lethal. In Chile, the president wants to nationalize lithium mining, and Indonesia has banned the export of nickel. When it comes to the 21st century's most technologically valuable minerals, developing countries are getting wise to the value of what they're holding. But first, quit all that yelling. Janet Yellen is getting a lot of airtime on the Multipolarity podcast, probably due to the fact that she's in a particularly difficult position as Secretary of the Treasury when many enormous geopolitical shifts are taking place and the US does not seem to have a consistent economic strategy to deal with these shifts. Obviously, last week we were talking about Janet Yellen's defense of sanctions together with her argument, assertion, call it what you will, that the US, although at risk of de-dollarization, is not going to de-dollarize. So a few days after that, I suppose, just about a week after that, Janet Yellen went to the Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies and gave a pretty well thought out speech on the US-China economic relationship. So obviously coming at the time that this does, this is an enormously important speech and could well end up being a historical speech. It could end up being quoted in history books. We won't care to predict what happens with the US-China relationship, but whatever happens, this speech will have been an intermediary step 
to it. I suppose the logical question following on that is, does the speech give us any indication into what is going to happen? No, I would say. It was a little underwhelming in that regard. The speech itself seemed... I guess a little mixed up. It caught headlines because Janet Yellen said that the US did not want to decouple from China and that decoupling from China will be, quote, disastrous, unquote. So that was the headline that the speech got. And frankly, reading the speech, I'm not sure if that was the intended messaging of the Treasury Department. Maybe it was. And this speaks to the fact that the speech is slightly confused, like U.S. policy itself, frankly, on these issues. Uh, Highlighting that such a disconnect would be disastrous is, I think, a positive step forward. Certainly something that we, we have said time again on the podcast. America and China are just simply too integrated. And the power in that integration flows from China to America, not vice versa, because China's the creditor and America's the debtor. We can go into all sorts of reasons that that puts America in a vulnerable position. But I think just generally the fact that they're the debtor and China's the creditor tells you who's got more power in that relative situation. So Yellen recognized this problem. She didn't recognize it in those terms. She didn't really talk much about why the decoupling would be problematic. That actually would have been a stronger speech. But one would hope that they're discussing this at the Treasury Department, that they're trying to work through these issues um, because no one seems to be talking about it in public. The rest of the speech was was a little odd. I would have thought from reading the headline that, you know, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen says decoupling could be a complete and utter disaster. Therefore, we are going to try and stop decoupling. And then from there, presumably, trade war that's been heating up since the Trump administration, would they would attempt to wind that back. But that's not really what the speech said. The speech pretty much kind of doubled down on on the trade war as it's currently being fought. I noticed contradictions in the speech as well. It's unusual that something that would be this carefully written, carefully drafted, would have overt contradictions in it. At one point, Yellen talks about the fairness aspect of China's economic practices. She says, quote, we will continue to partner with our allies to respond to China's unfair economic practices, unquote. And then slightly later, she emphasizes that all the measures being taken are purely national security based. So she says, for example, quote, even though these policies may have economic impacts, they are driven by straightforward national security considerations, end quote. Well, it can't really be both, can it? I mean, when you're talking about fairness and getting your allies to, you know, enforce quote unquote fair economic practices on China, you're talking about trade war. I mean, the actual morality of it or the fairness of it doesn't mean much. That's the language of protectionism. That's the language of trade war. Well, that isn't straightforward national security. Straightforward national security is banning X because it will have impact on the weapon development of country Y. Okay, that has nothing to do with economic fairness. So the whole speech, we we can talk about it a little bit more, maybe trash it out a little bit. But I think what you kind of take away from the initial part of the speech and, and the part that got the headlines the initial headlines, is that it's not well thought through. It's it's trying to say various things at once. It's saying that, you know, there's a fairness aspect, there's a national security a- aspect, it's only one or the other, et cetera, et cetera. And there's no, there's no specificity to the whole thing. It's saying, you know, we recognize that this could be a disaster to decouple, and then doubling down on all the things that are being perceived by everybody as decoupling. It was very strange. I actually got the impression that this was a speech that said, Look, China, we don't want to try to kill you. We just want to try to hurt you quite a bit, 
right? It, you know, she was saying, look, we're not going to decouple. We're not going to try to isolate China entirely. But what we're going to try to do is hurt them. And in terms of justifications for that, we're just going to come up with everything. The unfair trading practices, which was really something that was talked about 15 years ago, as I remember, in the run-up to the uh, global financial crisis, China's current account surplus and the way that they had pegged their currency to the dollar, and some of the trading practices within China were huge talking points in the economic press. It, it was one of the big stories, and ultimately the global financial crisis swept it away. And a lot of what Yellen spoke about was harking back to that, uh, as far as I could tell that you know, finally, America's going to do something about these unfair trading practices. But then she also threw the national security card on the table as well. And I, I felt like it wasn't so much that Yellen was selectively playing one or two of the cards that she had to justify trying to hobble China's economic growth as she was kind of throwing the whole deck at the listening journalists and dignitaries. And hoping that one or two of them would be picked up. That's the impression I got anyway. And ultimately, I think Washington really ought to be doing better than this. The, the relationship between the United States and China is far too important to be dealt in this way. I, I think personally, and I know you might disagree, but I think it's very important for the US to try to deter China from taking Taiwan. I think strategically, it's of paramount importance for the U.S. strategic position to keep hold of Taiwan, to keep Taiwan on the U.S. side of the ledger, at least for now, okay? But China then needs some reassurance from the U.S. As long as China doesn't you know, invade Taiwan, as long as it doesn't do anything foolish, as long as it doesn't do anything that could precipitate global Armageddon, then the U.S. is going to allow it to develop economically and the US is going to attempt to maintain good quality diplomatic relations. But at the moment, it seems the US is having the worst of both worlds. Their ability to deter the Chinese in the South China Sea and the Western Pacific in general is falling by the day. And at the same time, they're ramping up the rhetoric by the day. Then you have Janet Yellen here, whose headline part of the speech was that they really don't want to try to detached from China, they want to maintain trade relations. And then she starts talking in the speech about national security, about unfair trade practices, and how, look, we don't want to decouple entirely. We just want to hobble your economy in some high-tech sectors. It's just really not good enough from the Americans at all. It's not thought out. And even if you agreed with the, the a, a policy to aggressively contain China and attempt to economically uh, shackle the country in a series of key sectors which are going to be vital for the 21st century economy, even if you agreed with that policy, the way Washington go is going about it seems fundamentally unserious. Unserious is definitely a word that came to mind. And it wasn't just the speech itself. And by the way, I know we've given Janet Yellen a hard time now two weeks. I, I think she's probably being put in a fairly diff difficult position. I don't think this is all her She's doing. US Treasury Secretary. I'm sorry. It's like, I mean, this is a, that, this is what, like the second or third most important role within the, within the global superpowers governmental administration. I think, you know, if you're conceited enough to think you can do that job, then probably you deserve a hard time, especially when you're 
putting together speeches like this. That's probably true. I'm only saying it from the point of view that Treasury secretaries in the US usually only think about fiscal deficits and interest rates, and now they're being asked to think about things that might be beyond their can a little bit. That's to just give some some generosity to the Treasury Secretary. But the the, the other thing that seemed slightly odd to me was the was the pickup from the media. The Financial Times ran an editorial over the weekend, so the one that would go out to most people on their weekend paper. And the title of it was Janet Yellen's Welcome Overture to China. The subtitle was Beijing Should Respond to the Olive Branch from the US Treasury Secretary. You said about method of communication. I don't understand this method of communication. This is as if, so if you're saying that the US have extended China an olive branch, what you're assuming is that the US have taken a uh, diplomatically hostile stance toward China, like they have with, say, Iran or Venezuela. And then the Treasury Secretary comes out and hints that there might be a little bit of a crack in that ice and that an olive branch might poke through. But that's not what's going on here at all. That's the opposite of what's going on. The Chinese are freezing out the Biden administration. Biden's been trying to get a meeting with Xi for weeks since the Chinese spy balloon debacle that we covered on the show. And they haven't been able to get one. The Chinese have been ignoring them. So what olive branch is this? Everything about this communication strategy doesn't only seem unserious, it seems backward. It's as if the Americans and the Anglo media and so on don't understand the basics of the diplomatic situation here. The basics are very, very simple. The US has been, rightly or wrongly, imposing trade and economic measures on China that are seen by China, probably rightly, as hostile acts. Not warlike acts or anything, but economically hostile acts. The Chinese are really unhappy about this, and everybody's talking about a decoupling of the US and Chinese economies driven by the US. That's what's happening here. Now, if Janet Yellen is correct, which I think she is, and says that decoupling will be a disaster, okay, well, then it's very simple. You stop doing those actions. And if you don't stop doing those actions you'll probably end up decoupling. So the whole thing is completely backwards. It's backwards from the point of view of who's holding what diplomatic cards. It's backwards from the point of view of what what needs to tangibly be done to prevent the quote-unquote disaster from happening. It's backwards in just about every way. It feels like we're in kind of a hall of mirrors and there's these like, and Janet Yellen's standing there looking at all these distorted figures of Janet Yellen and being completely confused and thinking they're the Chinese or something. So I, I just, um, it's a very, very strange speech. And I, I worry that it'll go down in history as one of those kind of speeches that you might pull out from, you know, 1913. And you say, geez, this is the point where the two sides can't even talk to each other because they're not even speaking the same language and they can't even see, you know, what the di- what the basic diplomatic mapping is. I hope it's not that bad, but the, the, a, a very bad interpretation would be, would be that we're moving in that direction. Yeah, I agree with you. What's happened here is that Janet Yellen has made a speech essentially justifying on either national security grounds or on fair trade grounds or both the steps that the US has taken so far to prevent China from getting its hands on high-end chips and other items related to higher-end manufacturing, high-tech manufacturing. So Yellen's made a speech justifying that, okay? And then the Times or the Financial Times and much of the Western media has said, 
this is an olive branch to the Chinese. I assume because she didn't announce any more measures. It's like the fact that we didn't announce even more sanctions against the Chinese economy, that is somehow an olive branch. It seems very strange to me. This seems like a very strange mentality. It's interesting you should talk about the the balloon gate, as it was called. But if you remember when we were covering it at the time, Philip, we on multipolarity said, I mean, as as we're kind of stifling the giggles about the press hysteria about balloon gate and the potential for there to be a, a surveillance balloon gap opening up between the Chinese and the Americans, as we're stifling the giggles, we said, like, look, this is diplomatically extremely foolish because if you remember, Tony Blinken cancelled his trip to Beijing because of the furore that had been whipped up about this weather balloon crossing the continental United States. Now, if you remember, that was before Xi went to Moscow, and it was before Xi had arranged to go to Moscow. So what the US did is over a balloon, over a, a, a balloon flying across the US, which was unlikely to get any information more than Chinese satellites would be able to get, Blinken basically gave... Russia and Putin, first chance to meet Xi, okay? And since then, the Chinese have basically stonewalled the Americans about rearranging the meeting, okay? And since then, we've discovered as well from the Pentagon leaks, which apparently went out in some kind of Discord server from a a 21-year-old Air National Guardsman who apparently had access to a whole range of top-secret information, we've learned that there was more than one balloon there were there were other balloons as well that hadn't caused any media furore. So for that, the U.S. has sacrificed uh, a, a, a meeting with uh, the Chinese in Beijing, and now they're struggling to get things back going. Now they're having senior officials give confused speeches which seem back to front, which seem not to make sense, that say that there's an olive branch because they haven't continued their aggression. They've paused their aggression, and that's an olive branch. So what we'll do is we'll hobble a key industry for you now and potentially certainly an industry that's going to be of paramount importance to any 21st century economy. We'll attempt to hobble that to say, you are not allowed to develop technologically beyond a certain level, and we'll decide what that level is. But once we've done that, we won't go further and we'll call that an olive branch. I'm really not sure that this is how diplomacy works. The only thing I'd leave the reader with is uh, if this is an olive branch, what exactly were the Biden administration's diplomatic efforts to get a phone call with G? Chips fall where they may. Once again, we're seeing not really collateral damage from the, the economic sanctions policies that are being pursued as the logical consequence of the sanctions policies themselves. Obviously, um, a few weeks ago, a few months ago, I suppose, America started imposing bans on the very advanced chips being sent to China, and they rallied some of their allies behind preventing them. Uh, We were very skeptical of it. My party line, I think maybe the multipolarity party line at this stage is sanctioning commercially available products tends to not work very well, and will just probably end up developing your opponent's industry at the expense of your own and erode your own competitive advantage in the process. The other aspect of sanctioning these things is that the ensuing battle that occurs will always occur based on relative economic muscle. If you sanction me, I'm going to probably try and sanction you back. That's how trade wars work. That's how they always work. That's why they're called wars. 
the winner of the war, like the person with the bigger army and the better tactics in actual war, is the person with the bigger economic cloud over the other guy's economy. And what I've definitely been saying from the very beginning of all this, I think we alluded to it at the start of the show, America is a debtor country that runs trade deficits and does not produce all it consumes. China is the opposite. It is a creditor country that has the biggest manufacturing um, economy in the world, and it produces a lot of the stuff that America consumes. And that is, uh, there are a million and one different ways where you can go down the chain and show that China, it has the economic advantage because of its manufacturing capacity over the US and probably over most of the West as well. That may not be forever. The US may be able to claw back its manufacturing with good policy, but it won't happen in the next year. It won't happen in the next five years. Now what's happening is America's banned these high-end chips to China, and China is now considering its response because trade wars are wars. And so what it's looking to do is to ban Chinese imports from the Idaho-based chip manufacturer Micron. And just to give some sense of how important the Chinese market is to Micron, mainland China and Hong Kong generated 25% of their 31-ish billion revenue last year from that region. So the, this is enormously important. Now, why is this really problematic? Well, one reason is that part of the reason America wants to engage in these chip bans is that they want to uh, rebuild their domestic semiconductor industry. So the Inflation Reduction Act had a carve out of tax credits for the semiconductor industry. Well, if uh, one of your key chip manufacturers loses 25% of its revenue overnight, at best, that manufacturer is not going to be engaged in long-term capital expenditure for very long. They've just lost probably one of their largest markets. At worst, they could go bankrupt. The company could just go to the wall. Now, you could step in and fill that gap with funny money from the government, but you'll just create terrible incentives and the company will probably go downhill anyway. You need a competing on the global marketplace um, shipping these chips to an actual end consumer to keep the discipline up. So obviously America recognized that. They haven't got to the point, I almost say yet, but they haven't got to the point where they're willing to throw funny money at these problems. And so what they're trying to do is figure out where China is going to substitute these chips from. So they'll stop buying from Micron and then they'll buy them elsewhere. And they're trying to figure out where that is. I think as of yesterday, they've um, they've pinpointed it's probably going to be South Korea. So the White House are now lobbying the South Koreans and it probably will be the South Koreans and then probably the Europeans after that and so on down the chain and saying, look, if China don't buy this stuff from Micron, please don't sell it to them. Well, this raises a number of questions. I mean, the two most obvious are, first of all, where does this end? Where does this end in terms of this sanctions, counter sanctions, trade war between the US and China? Like, does it go on? Does it just keep generating and generating and generating? Because America will lose that war. You just have to look at the relative manufacturing numbers and you'll realize it immediately. Or, and then the secondary question is, how long can this go on for diplomatically? The US has asked various countries around the world not to send advanced semiconductors to China. It appears, and you know, lithographical technology from from ASML in Netherlands and so on. It appears that they've got buy-in on that. So how far does it go down the chain then? So now, now we're going down the the chain a step further. We're saying, okay, it's not just advanced stuff now. You can't even send them the more generic stuff. 
well, why can't we send them that? Is it for a good, you know, reason that they're going to develop their military? No, it's because they refuse to buy it from us. At a certain point, your allies are going to go, that's not, that's a you problem. That's not a me problem. We bought in on, you know, making sure that the Chinese didn't develop their military with access to advanced ships, if that was even the motivation. It's a big step from there to, yeah, we won't sell them any chips because they're refusing to buy them from you because you launched a trade war on them. It's like getting pulled into a real war. I mean, the consequences aren't as bad, obviously, but the consequences are still really bad economically. No one's going to want to get pulled in on this. So every time that the Biden administration steps out and asks something else of their allies because of the logical consequences of their trade war with China, it's going to be more and more diplomatically difficult to push that. So it'll be very interesting to watch how the South Koreans respond to this. It will indeed. And the diplomatic angle to this was the first thing that crossed my mind as well. The US, it seems, got buy-in eventually uh, from the Japanese and the Netherlands, which are two key nodes uh, for various reasons on the very high-end, kind of very low-number nanometer uh, chips that the US wanted to prevent China from getting its hands on. I think the Netherlands was a little bit more difficult than Japanese. I think that took a fair bit of diplomatic cajoling. But eventually they did get buy-in. And But exactly as you say, the Chinese were bound to respond, and the response looks as if it may well be banning chips from uh, the import of chips from Micron, which at 25% of revenue, one would imagine, would be a, a fair old blow to Micron's uh, bottom line eventually and its ability to invest in the sort of research and development that these companies need to do to keep relevant. And we shouldn't forget that chip manufacturer at a whole range of levels on the supply chain is tremendously capital intensive. I mean, the amount of money that the Taiwanese invest in research and development and plant and machinery, you know, runs into tens of billions of dollars. It's a huge amount that they've that 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 they've had to invest to get to this kind of very rarefied end of the market. And regular chips for companies like Intel and Micron as well. They are, you know, they are also capital intensive. So hammering away a quarter of this company's top line is going to be quite a blow. So now the U.S. is telling, one would assume, Samsung, well, look, you know, you don't sell to them either. But one would also assume that for Samsung, the Chinese market is also huge. And, you know, like you say, how far does this go? You know, does the U.S. then, in response to this attack on Micron, you know, put another set of sanctions and the Chinese respond again. It, was it Kissinger who said it, who said uh, to be an enemy of America is dangerous, but to be its friend is lethal. It's actually starting to feel like that at the moment a little bit, certainly for the, the companies who would like to do uh, semiconductor and chip business with China. But another thing trust struck me is that the US is having to put pressure on the South Koreans to do this. But this isn't the only diplomatic pressure that the U.S. is trying to apply to the South Koreans at the moment. They have been for some time trying to cajole and pressure and push Seoul to provide 105mm artillery rounds to the Ukrainians. The South Koreans have trade laws in place that forbid 
the export of artillery rounds and other munitions for such purposes. And the Americans have been pushing and pushing and pushing. And finally, they felt that they had found a way around this by loaning, in inverted commas, the uh, artillery for themselves. And uh, one would assume that eventually the South Koreans would get it back and the South Koreans would have no idea what the Americans were going to do with it in the meantime. And this was the the way around this they were going to get. But then, of course, out come the Pentagon leaks, which we mentioned earlier in the show, which showed that even as the South Koreans were wrestling with this decision on how to get around their own export law and you know how to provide uh, all these weapons, the U.S. were spying on them and they were getting essentially a blow-by-blow account of the deliberations within the South Korean government. So obviously this has been something that's been picked up in South Korea. And in fact, in the second week of April, the presidential approval rating of the South Korean president fell four percentage points to only 27% approval. And the primary factor in that was diplomacy, believe it or not. That just shows you that the South Korean public is not impressed with what's going on. And here come the Americans again saying, okay, now we want you to hobble your chip export business by not selling to China. I think it's getting to the stage where the US is using up a lot of capital here, a lot of diplomatic capital. And I think they might want to pause perhaps and pick and choose their fights. I mean, are they going to put pressure on these countries to break their own trade laws and sell 105 millimeter artillery rounds to Ukraine? Or are they going to push these countries to hobble their own industry in order that the US can do better on its trade war with China? I think eventually it's going to have to be either or. Let me make one other point because we, one other economic point, a very classic economic point, because we're kind of focusing here on the diplomatic aspect and, and the tendency for trade war to spiral, which it does, and which I would, referring back to a previous segment, uh, encourage the US Treasury Department and Janet Yellen to study that when they're talking about the disaster of decoupling, well, trade war will get you to decoupling pretty quick if it gets out of control, which it appears to be getting out of control. But even beyond that, look, what are the simple economics of this, okay? Simple economics of this are very straightforward. When China removes 25% of Micron's revenues, that 25% goes elsewhere to buy semiconductors, okay? Micron loses, it could fail as a company, it might not engage in as much capital expenditure. The semiconductor industry in America will be thereby weakened, okay? Now, let's say that they convince South Korea and everybody else right down to Tasmania not to sell semiconductors because they're not buying them from Micron. Okay, then that 25% of Micron's revenue goes back to the Chinese mainland, okay? And it gets invested in creating a Chinese micron. So the end game, even the end game where this works, where the diplomatic pressure works, where you expend all your capital doing this and you eventually convince your allies not to send the semiconductors, it may have an impact in the short term for a few years. But in the medium term and certainly in the long term, You've just cut off your nose to spite your face. You've just got rid of a competitive industry that you have either in your own country or in your sphere of influence, and you've redomiciled it onto Chinese shores. And the Chinese will never need to buy from Micron again. 
And Micron, that portion of Micron's revenue will no longer be competitive in the global market. And if the Chinese version of Micron turns out to be, oh, I don't know, cheaper, like a lot of Chinese things tend to be, then maybe it'll undermine Micron even more. So there's no winning this game. There really isn't. The only winner in a game like this is the country with the bigger manufacturing capacity and the ability to deploy capital fast and in a somewhat efficient manner to get that industry to grow even more. And everything points to China having the advantages in that regard. I'm not sure if I'm necessarily as bearish as that, but I I do think you're right to a certain degree. I think probably the US understands that they can't hold China back forever. My general view has been, I've expressed it on the podcast before, Washington's idea is basically to hold the Chinese back for like two, five, or maybe 10 years at most, to basically slow them down for a period, not hold, not kind of push them back 10 years in development, but maybe push them back a year or two of development and keep them from catching up over the next 10 years, basically. And by doing that, I guess the plan is it, slows down Chinese progression and allow it gives the buys the US time to pivot toward Asia and to build up its own military and own economic influence within the Western Pacific. I'm not sure that at the moment that is anywhere close to working. They're pivoting towards Europe militarily. They are showing no ability to counterbalance China's economic weight within the region. Didn't get involved in the EP, uh, TPP, the, uh, the Trans-Pacific Partnership. China in countries, even like the Philippines, which have traditionally been staunch US allies, are huge, much bigger trading partner, bilateral trading partners with countries like the Philippines than, than the US. I think it's only Japan and perhaps Korea, who are who have the U.S. as their major trading partner. So I, th- I, you know, I think that if the plan is just to hold them up for ten years or so to prevent this El Paso from happening until the U.S. can get its ducks in a row in that part of the world, they're just nowhere near that. Yeah, and I'd also say trying to plan for something that complex is farcical. It's like trying to trying to treat a riot like a business meeting. It's it's the world doesn't work like that. It'll be law of un, unintended consequences, you know, taken to the next level. Multipolar metallurgy. I thought it was worth having a bit of a catch up on lithium because lithium's one of those really interesting kind of new economy area sectors that I think it's important to keep listeners up to date with. Lithium is something that is in all of our mobile phones, our laptop computers, and and of course it's a big, it's a hugely important uh, industry for the the push for clean energy and the environmental plans. Um, and whether you agree with the the thinking behind those or not, I know it's fairly controversial, but whether you agree with it or not, uh, you know governments are pursuing, you know, and certainly in Europe and. And the US, and I think to a certain degree in China as well, they're pursuing these green energy policies and, and lithium is going to be a crucial metal for that. So what's happened this week is Chile has announced that or, or, or the Chilean president, uh, Gabriel uh, Boritz, has announced that he intends to nationalize the Chilean lithium mining industry. What he plans to do is negotiate with 
the two main com- companies who extract lithium in Chile, which is SQM, which is a Chilean-owned business, and Albemarle, which is an American-owned mining concern. And he's going to negotiate for much bigger shares for the Chilean state within their mining contract. So it might not be a full 100% nationalization, but it looks like it's going to be a kind of a 50% plus one share deal at the moment. Why is this important? Well, Chile is the world's number two producer of lithium and is the the fourth largest country in the world in terms of its share on the global market. And it comes on the back of a series of decisions related to lithium and mining as well. The Mexicans nationalized their lithium mining and production last year. You also had talk a little while ago, which we covered on the podcast, of Argentina, Chile, Bolivia, and Brazil grouping together and forming a kind of a a lithium OPEC, a cartel that would basically manage the supply of lithium on the global marketplace in order to set a kind of a a floor on the lithium price. And obviously those uh, four countries are very important producers. Brazil less so, although it is thought to have lots of deposits. And you also have countries like Indonesia, where they've banned the export of nickel because, which again, nickel is another crucial metal for the uh, modern economy in uh, high-tech goods, in batteries, and in catalytic converters, all this kind of thing. So Indonesia banned the export of nickel because it wanted to build up its own smelting and refining industry. It didn't just want to export the raw material and let other countries get involved, you know, do all the value added stuff. It wanted to do that. So what we're seeing here really is a trend of countries starting to understand which sectors, which extractive sectors are going to be crucial for the global economy in the next, say, 100 years or so. They're trying to recognize the worth of those sectors, and they're trying to control it themselves to maximize benefits for themselves. I think long gone are the days where you you had these extractive economies where all they did essentially was ship out basic raw materials, and they did very little value add, and all the the value add in terms of uh, refining, uh, finishing, or or, or producing semi-finished products, or even the manufacturing, that went on in advanced economies. No, these countries are going to control going to try to control this industry themselves for their own benefit. And I think it's another way where we see the global consensus, the neoliberal IMF consensus, which has been one crucial part of the unipolar world order, or perhaps you might want to call it the rules-based world order of the past 25 or 30 years. It's another leg that's starting to break down. Yeah, there's a few things to say about this. I mean, the first thing to point out is, If this trend continues, if we keep moving in this direction, then one of the arguments for green energy is gone. It's completely dead. That argument was we need to be less dependent on oil-producing nations, on fossil uh, fuel-producing nations, that this uh, dependency not only renders us vulnerable to economic pressure from these countries, but it also encourages us, in one interpretation, to go on wild foreign policy adventures that get us bogged down in, say, the Middle East. That That has been one of the arguments for the adoption of clean energy. If this trend continues, that argument is done. We can never listen to it again. It's not serious. 
in a lot of ways, this could be even worse than fossil fuels. <laughs> we'll see. So that's the first thing to note. I mean, the second kind of boring economic point to note, but it, it will be important in how it plays out, is are these industries, shall we say, amenable to, uh, to state monopoly? So usually economists think that industries that do well as being called natural monopolies, you can think about you know railways or so on. No, we don't believe that in Britain anymore. We've privatized the railways. They're very expensive. I'm not sure if it's worked so well. Natural monopoly systems, they tend to apply to specific industries. Now, of course, on paper, large lithium ore mines would seem to tick those boxes. But I think it's a little more subtle. The state's probably not going to be as innovative at deploying capital investment and so on to uh, take advantage of newer processes. If the state has to do something that they've been doing for 50 years previously, or the private sector has been doing for 50 years previously, it's pretty easy to take over the company and just run it, keep it running. And that's kind of what the railways were like, at least the railway tracks, not, not, the, not the locomotives themselves. Lithium mining strikes me that it's probably a slightly newer type of industry than, say, standard oil extraction. I'm thinking of non-shale non-fracking, that kind of thing. Just kind of standard oil extraction, pretty simplistic stuff. If it is, there might be issues here with, uh, with, with capital investment, capital deployment, and so on. So that'll be kind of interesting to see how it shakes out. But I don't think it should be ignored. If we are talking about um, large-scale nationalizations of an industry in a very high-growth phase that's relatively recent, at least in terms of the scale it's currently operating at, I think those kind of economic questions start to arise. But apart from that, I mean, look, those are more minor considerations relative to the fact that we could be looking at another kind of OPEC-like entity. And even if the industry in those countries becomes less efficient due to it or something like that, ultimately, that'll be outweighed by the fact that this will presumably give these countries more geostrategic power. To deal with the OPEC point first, I'm not altogether certain that an OPEC for lithium could work in the same way that it has for oil. The reason I say that is because there's a wave of new lithium deposits that are either in the pipeline for being exploited or are now coming online in places like Australia, um, China, Argentina, as well as places like Mexico and uh, potentially even more in Bolivia, which is uh, one of the, uh, is the, thought to be the largest or has the largest reserves of lithium in the world. So there's a wave of new supply coming on, on online, and <clears throat> I'm not sure if demand is necessarily going to match that. So it, it might be difficult to get to an OPEC-like situation where you really can start manipulating the supply quite as much as the uh, Saudis are able to within OPEC. However, the, the, the flip side to that is that the current estimates are that we're going to need about 450% so four and a half, you know, four and a half times more uh, lithium production than we currently have in the world in in the next 15, 20 years. So there really does need to be a, a big increase in lithium, and it is going to be very important. I mean, you mentioned before. I mean, the the number of things that are in my house that now have a lithium ion battery are huge. Like I've got a vacuum cleaner that has a lithium ion battery. It's like my mobile phone, my laptop, like all kinds of things. And now we're also seeing uh, electric cars coming onto the market, which are big users. And especially places like China, where electric car sales are really increasing at breakneck speed. So this is something that people are going to have to 
look out for and how this market balances will it will it kind of wildly fluctuate in price will, you know will it be something where as the industry as the demand expands and as mines try to keep up or get ahead of that demand will you see wild fluctuations where we have mismatches on the second point with regard to nationalization i suppose i'm not altogether certain that these industries are suitable for nationalization anyway so one example of a country that tried to renationalize a lot of its extractive industries and really tried to get state control over a lot of its prime industries was Russia. Between the early 2000s and the late uh, 2010s, Russia went through a period of nationalization and consolidation in the oil and gas industry. The metals and mining industry, though, less so. I mean, you have Norilsk Nickel, which is a huge mine country, mining company, and you've got Rusal, which is a huge mining company. And then you have a whole bunch of smaller iron ore and steel making com- com- companies, but they're still all in private hands, even though they're very large. So whether that's an indicator or not, I don't know. One of the things I would say is, though, what's important is not to look at this through the eyes of whether it's countries are going to nationalize or not. What's important to look at is that countries are looking at these industries and they're putting together industrial plans, okay? So that might involve nationalizing some sectors altogether. It might involve doing what Chile is probably likely to do and take a big stake in certain projects that these large private companies basically run themselves might involve what Indonesia was doing with regard to keeping the industry in private hands, but putting export tariffs in place or export excise tax on in place to encourage the development of industries vertically integrated with certain sectors, which is something that the Indonesians did, as I said. So, or, or you could have the Mexican view where Mexico has been one of the most uh, friendly countries in terms of mining concessions and basically contracts in the extractive industries. But now the government there is really starting to push back against that and is currently examining legislation, which will make it much less friendly for the corporations and the miners who are involved in that industry in Mexico. So I I think the prism to look through this is not necessarily whether they're going to nationalize or whether they're not, but it's really... These countries are, are, are now focused quite strongly on coming up with industrial strategies that go against the kind of the classical economic view that you should, you know, do what you're best at. Just stick to it. You know, you've got no metal smelters. You've got no manufacturing. Maximize what you go, maximize where your comparative advantage is, which is extracting this stuff off the ground, out the ground, and exporting it. And keep that all in private hands because they'll allocate the capital the best. You can tax them at a low rate so that you know encourages them to maximize their own profits and then your tax. And that um, will be very hands-off about it. That's the kind of classical way of looking at things. That's the way the kind of, I guess, the IMF would encourage people to look at. And that was generally the consensus. But things are starting to change now and you're starting to get these industrial strategies right across the developing world. Thank you.
Should I hum the multicolor? Do, 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 do. 